We are in the condition we are in, in the state of ignorance we are in, in the state of war, in the state of economic depression, in the state of depletion of the resources of our planet because of the greed of psychopaths who thought they could create their own reality. Well, look at the reality they created. You're listening to Behind the Headlines on the SOT Radio Network, the world for people who think. Hi, and welcome to Behind the Headlines on the Radio Network. Uh, sorry about that. Uh, <laughs> um, I'm Joe Quinn, and my co-hosts this week are Neil Bradley and Pierre Lascodro. Hello. Hello, everyone. Um, this week, we will be talking about not a lot, because we're not allowed to talk about anything. Well, that's not quite true. There's some things we're not allowed to talk about out of uh, concern for well, ourselves, really, mm-hmm. <laughs> and our operation. As most people know, there have been moves to effectively criminalize uh, certain types of speech, uh, hate speech, in France after the power shootings uh, a couple of weeks ago almost. Um, of course, what defines hate speech is uh, seems to be fairly or how hate speech is defined seems to be uh, it's defined in a fairly broad way. Um, so uh, we have to basically be careful in that kind of situation when um, the definition isn't very specific. Yeah. You, you can be um, you can get in trouble without knowing that you're going to get in trouble. You're right, and uh, the problem, I think, is the unclear definition of... It's not exactly hate speech. In French law, hate speech was already uh, deemed illegal, like uh, criticizing or disagreeing with the official version of Holocaust. The new law specifically targets um, apology for terrorism. And here, the the understanding of these terms is very broad, as illustrated by uh, the recent case of Dieudonné, who was uh, put in guard of duty or detained for a few days because, according to authorities, he defended terrorism, he supported terrorism, all that because of a Facebook message where he wrote, I am... You're not allowed to say what he actually wrote. Uh, I think it's uh, it's an old message. It frightened me. You know, we live in such state of paranoia, and uh, it's the I'm not a being a little silly. Policemen are, are, are knocking on the door. Well, it? the censors listening. That's... Yeah. So the fact is, Judoni published a Facebook post where he stated, where the title was, "I am Charlie Koulibaly. Koulibaly from the name of the alleged terrorist who killed four. Jew customers in a cashier supermarket, Amidi Kulibari. And he commented in the title saying, I am public enemy number one in France for one year, like Amidi Kulibari. Also, I support Charlie. I am Charlie. And therefore, I'm Charlie and I'm Amidi Kulibari, the enemy. Therefore, I am Charlie Kulibari. And because of that, Heroism. That's uh, obviously what he actually said was 
as Pierre explained, it had some several meanings going on behind it, the most important one drawing attention to his plight and the plight, the real plight of freedom of speech, not just in France, but in the West in general. Um, and I'm sure, you know, the authorities were well aware of that. But as we know, there's been a long background and um, battle to, to shut him up. And this this latest incident really is just, it's more, it's convenient. It was a good time to to take this particular thing he said and use it as as an example to to others. Um, obviously, he's a very high profile figure in France, so there's a case of making an example to anyone else with such fame. Yes, there's also there's a functional need for it insofar as he is a popular person. But um, the mood here and elsewhere in Europe, as we saw this week. It's going beyond just um, one-on-one battles with people who have a high-profile public personality because there have been numerous arrests and numerous convictions already in France of people who were overheard muttering things, in in some cases when they were drunk, like young, young French guys of Arab descent coming out of nightclubs you know, making silly comments, really. And, of course, they didn't mean whatever was expressed. But that was taken as an objectionable offence reported to the authorities. They haven't just been arrested. They've been arrested and sent down to prison already. So, yeah, uh, on the basis of these kinds of actions that are going on, um, it's probably wise for us just to... Ah, it's it's about wisdom, I suppose, because uh, if we want our main function is to spread knowledge, say radio show based on information. If you want to be able, and same with our website sort.net, if you want to be able to continue this activity, we have to be uh, wise enough to moderate our talk concerning some specific sensitive topics for a while. And uh, we have to go beyond this sometimes narcissistic hero program where in time of crisis, you have to speak loud to everybody and share your anger. And uh, that can be dangerous because if we do that today, if we talk loud today, we will not be allowed to talk for the rest of uh, maybe our lives. So it's a trade-off. One step back, it's a strategic, you know, like, like in chess, it's not always about pushing forward. Sometimes you push back, sometimes you don't move. It doesn't mean you've stopped playing. It doesn't mean you will not win the game, but it means you have to be strategic and you make, you try to make the right move at the right time. And sometimes it's painful. And right now, I don't know what we're going to talk about, maybe finance, economy, uh, uh, storms or, or floods in Lithuania. We don't care about that much. Our all our brain, our heart are involved and focused in what happened in France. And the most frustrating is that we cannot reasonably talk about it. Well, not not much. I think we can talk about it. Uh, I don't think we should go too far and self self censor when. Uh, when there's plenty of things we can say, I think um, 
without infringing any obvious, you know, any established laws or new laws. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's, it's what it is. You know, you have to take care in these times and be realistic and stuff. And I'm not sure. It's, I don't think it's necessarily narcissistic to, to to want to do that. It's just a bit naive or it's not paying attention. You know, there's plenty of uh, good people who want to shout out against the uh, right in front of their faces, uh, but they do it in a in a way where they put themselves in danger. You know, um, and it, it may, some people may be doing it for narcissistic reasons, but I think a lot of people are. Uh, do that for um, for genuine reasons. I want to speak out against uh, what they what they believe are uh, believed to be wrong or believed to be right. Um, but in certain situations, it's not prudent to do that. Um, and you have to navigate that. You're saying you have to uh, be careful and just say, you know, effectively, you can convey the message in a different way. You know, I mean, the law is quite specific in that sense. Uh, I don't think you can be penalized for uh, you know, talking around a topic. I, mean, I think it comes down to saying something very clearly and specifically uh, that in a court of law could be pointed to as clear evidence. Um, but there's obviously other ways to talk about a particular topic uh, in general terms without infringing any of the state You're right. laws. I suppose we can report documented facts that are mainstream where there is strong consensus that indeed it happened. Like this uh, French politician Caroline Forest reporting about his, her discussion with one of the employees, female employees of Charlie Hebdo, and allegedly, according to Forest, this employee told her that the terrorist had those very nice blue eyes. That's a fact, it's documented, it's on video, it's Forest-ition. Who said it? We can report it. And about after, up to listeners to connect the dots. It's, I think what is dif- what is tricky would be to connect the dots too much or draw conclusions or go too much beyond established facts. Yeah, I mean, I'm not really interested in talking uh, again anyway. I mean, although we did do a show uh, previously on this, um, I'm not really, even then, I'm not that interested in talking too specifically about uh, what happened in, in Paris and the details of it. I mean, there's a fallout uh, around it that many people are talking about, and it's to do with uh, the whole obviously free speech in France has come in, come in for criticism. The French government has come in for criticism, where it's essentially being called hypocritical in terms of uh, clamping down on the free speech of some people or certain groups and, and not uh, doing so with other groups. You know, they don't effectively apply uh, this, uh, these laws across the board to everybody and I mean that's it's when that kind of thing happens it's pretty obvious and uh, I mean that's part of the dominant discourse in the, in the mainstream media type thing I mean there's plenty of people in European journalists etc and newspapers talking about the kind of slightly hypocritic, hypocritical bent that, it, that it's taken uh, where um, you know there's plenty of people uh, today and I'm sure there's plenty of uh, comments being heard uh, by different people in France today about Muslims uh, that theoretically could amount to uh, hate speech uh, and nothing's been done about it uh, because it's seen in France at the minute that uh, Muslims 
whether people say it specifically or not, there's a general sense that Muslims are, to some extent, collectively responsible for the Paris attacks, and therefore, if there's a backlash against them, well, then it's justified. So you're not going to take anybody to prison for for being angry at what Muslims did. But I mean, it's so um, it's it's such a general generalization. It's so uh, it's such it's so non-specific that uh, it doesn't satisfy anybody. I, I think you know. I mean, I think a lot of people uh, there's a lot of people out there who want who would like to go into the specifics of it and try and understand what's actually happening. There's a lot of people who just are uneasy or unhappy with the, with the broad kind of um, terrorists just attacked us and they're evil, so we should uh, all feel bad about um, the Paris attacks and, uh, and just get on with our lives. You know? um, but, I mean, any normal rational person, I suppose, with a bit of intelligence would want to kind of try and understand something. When something traumatic happens to people, this is true for, for example, take the death of someone, you know, if someone dies, uh, a lot of times people strive and, and uh, put a lot of effort into it and show that they want to try and understand why it happened. You know, if someone dies in an untimely way, there's a kind of common meme there or a general understanding amongst people that uh, people want to understand why did this happen, you know. And I think that applies to any traumatic event. People, normal human beings, uh, have a need to understand the reasons for it so that they can then heal from it. Mm. Uh, but that's not what we're being given part of the dominant discourse in France or around the world when they talk about the Paris attacks. Uh, it's just a very um, broad, generalized explanation that doesn't go into the details and doesn't leave people with a, with a satisfactory explanation. You know, um, you know, there's, I mean, a lot of people in the mainstream media have been talking about blowback and stuff, whether the attacks in Paris were in some way uh, blowback from, you know, uh, French involvement in, I mean, it's generally understood that uh, Muslim terrorism, I think, is, is in part anyway, at least the terrorists usually talk about um, after they've committed terrorist attacks, they usually talk about, we did this for, you know, our for the things Israel is doing to Palestinians or for what the Americans did in Iraq or whatever country they attack, they blame the Western country they attack, they blame that country for uh, carrying out some kind of a aggression against Muslim people. This is what they say. So it seems bizarre that that wouldn't be talked about more, you know, because it's even reported in the media and, and well known by, I think, everybody. That idea, at least, is well understood that uh, there is, supposedly, at least according to the terrorists, uh, a reason for what they do. But that reason is rarely, if ever, really explored or uh, explored to the, even to the point of trying to understand, trying to see if there's any valid validity to it. If it's a valid argument, they make, they make it all the time. But you never see any in-depth discussion of that, you know, uh, which I think a lot of people understand as well, and uh, people realize that happens, and uh, but they don't make too much noise about it, you know. Even children understand that. You had a few days ago a speech of uh, Najat Valo Belkacem, the French Minister of Education, in front of the Chamber of uh, Deputies, Assemblée Nationale. And uh, she was reporting about uh, the aftermath of the Charlie Hebdo event in French incidents. And uh, she qualified those incidents, saying that, uh, yeah, many kids uh, emphasize the double standard. And they were wondering why 
there is so much freedom of speech for Charlie Hebdo and why there is less freedom of speech for some other touchy topics. And uh, yeah, the truth comes out of a children's mouth. <clears throat> and actually, all that occurred in a more global um, context where this Minister of Education implemented a plan, a post-Charlie Hebdo plan, uh, listing several measures to uh, say guide the thinking of French children and their way of understanding and analyzing the seven. So it's a very thin line. I don't know to what extent the role of the public education is to provide an official, almost compulsory interpretation of uh, such events. Yeah. I mean, there is a reality to it all uh, that isn't discussed, like we're saying. Um, and it's a publicly available reality or truth uh, that makes much more sense, you know. Um, and people just have to do their own research. And I'm not talking here about internet research necessarily, but even in books, you know, if you look at, um, at the history of uh, the 20th century, even, um, scanning of, of the actions of the West towards the Middle East and the rest of the world um, and what happens when one, when let's say an empire or a, a powerful Western government goes invading around the world and stuff, the reaction of ordinary people to it uh, and then what the empire or the government does to try and prevent any resistance to its uh, imperial expansion. Uh, there's a whole kind of process that's involved there that I actually wrote about in a recent article on Sat.net concerning the British uh, British intelligence services in Northern Ireland uh, and the way that they seek to deal with, uh, where they have the, the policies that they've developed to deal with resistance groups. And this uh, applies to any country. It's a template that they use in any country. And it's effectively, they just, um, when they want to, control a country where there is a resistance to their presence or their influence from the local people and the local people form themselves into some kind of resistance group. Uh, the, usually the intelligence agencies of the country that's kind of invading or occupying will uh, infiltrate that group and effectively gain control of it. And their goal is to gain control of it and subvert it in that way so that it can't be affected. But as I wrote in the article, it's um, quickly they and they're, because they're talking about state resources here, usually they're quite successful at that, and eventually they find themselves in a position where they're actually in control of the resistance group itself. They can make it do whatever they want. And if they want to continue their presence in that country, uh, this so one thing is, is battling the resistance group or the resistance in the country you're invading, but another thing is justifying your continued presence yeah. in that country to your people back home. So in that case, an enemy is very useful or the the appearance of an enemy in that country against which you must fight in that country, therefore you must stay in the country. So once they, they gain control of these resistance groups, they then figure quite naturally that it's very useful to continue to have this group uh, as a terrorist group or whatever they want to call it, that they, they, in whatever pejorative term they want to use, uh, to have it uh, as a threat. Um, 
to the West, that's why we need to be there type of thing. It's fairly obvious from a kind of suppose from a psychopathic kind of view, uh we wouldn't you don't care about anything but winning the war or winning your achieving your objectives. Uh it's a fairly obvious process and plan to follow. But it does explain a lot about what's going on in the world today, vis a vis the West and Muslim terrorism. Uh so it's pretty easy for people to figure out. Yeah. You're right and um, beyond the Northern Ireland example, you have the for example the fire in the Reichstag in 1923, that was initially attributed to a communist activist in order to demonize the communist minority and to legitimize its uh, uh, deportation or segregation by the Nazi Germany. Or you have 2001, Water Center event, who led to the uh, reduction, drastic reduction of civil liberties in the US and uh, conducting several uh, punishment wars in the uh, Middle East. And uh, in both cases, later on, evidence emerged that those operation, terrorist operation, had not been conducted by the culprit that had been uh, defined by official history. But it was too late, yeah. because the official history has to be accepted only during this narrow window of opportunity, during which people, history yeah. size, are highly suggestible and likely to accept the unacceptable. Yeah, the moves can be made, you know. Uh, a political agenda can be fulfilled in that, in that window of opportunity where people are in a traumatized state or believing the, the narrative of the, the myth. The same thing happened in... There are plenty, like I said, there are plenty of other examples. Um, I mean, the British were... Uh, had places, had occupations and uh, as part of their empire around the world, another one was Kenya, for example. It's just after the Second World War in the 1950s. The British, um, there was a, a revolt in the 1950s, early 1950s, by the local uh, Kenyan people. The British called them the Mau Mau, protesting against fairly brutal uh, tactics and uh, conditions imposed on them by the British, by the by the colonists. So this revolt of the Malmo, the Kenyan revolt, began when the British responded to it by, uh, like I wrote in the article as well, they captured some of the resistance members and turned them, and turned them under threat, under pain of death or torture, or whatever. They turned them in, into agents to work within the group to subvert it. And, but they also had their own agents. <clears throat> in fact, in Kenya, they went to the extent of Paint, having British uh, soldiers or intelligence operatives paint them, paint their faces up, paint their bodies up in, in black boot polish, and uh, to go out at night to appearing like Kenyan uh, rebels uh, to terrorise white colonial settler houses. Uh, so the the goal there is to demonise, uh, first of all, to demonise the, the resistance movement to make them look like apparently. Make, make it appear that they're carrying out attacks uh, against you know, brutal, vicious attacks against white settlers to get uh, the support of people back home to to continue that punitive operation, let's say, against them. Um, so, I mean, it's, it's, it happened it happened repeatedly over the past you know, hundred years and probably all throughout history. Um, that's the policy they, they follow and it's, it seems to come naturally to them you know what, they come across this problem and they come up with this obvious solution to it immediately yeah. 
and it's very well. It's very convincing because it's well. It's based on a lie. It's based on deception. And like you said, Pierre, there uh, pointed to to create and, and with control of the media, they can project it very, very well and catapult yeah. the propaganda very well to people back home and create this reality, uh, which ultimately just justifies their continued imperial expansion and control over various countries and their resources, etc. And pff, there's not much more to it. Really. You're right. It's so simple that it's disheartening. And uh, from what you say, the the saying, the ones who don't learn from history are deemed to repeat it, mm-hmm. uh, takes a new dimension. And uh, it's been used and reused so often and it's still working. I think a big explanation is what we mentioned previously, is the emotional state. And uh, when you look at this operation, intri- objectively, the operation is traumatizing but the way it's overplayed and overdramatized by media multiplies by 10 or 100 the emotional impact on uh, observers, us, the people. And uh, to some extent, it freezes our critical reasoning. In a normal state, all the inconsistency we would easily see in a normal state becomes invisible because uh, we're blinded by emotions. It's this simple and this tragic. Yeah, it's very tragic, and it's it's a it's a vulnerability, I think, of of human beings. Uh, it's part of human nature that they are quite vulnerable and quite impressionable, amazingly impressionable. In fact, uh, I mean, here we're talking about repeated kind of propaganda and actual facts, uh, or actual events being presented to people, uh, like shootings or traumatic kind of bombings, etc. That people can't don't doubt and believe to be real, even though they may be manipulated in some way. Uh, here, an example would be uh, NATO's kind of stay behind networks, Gladio, back in the in the 60s and 70s uh, or 70s and 80s maybe in um, in Europe, where were NATO groups groups controlled or directed by NATO, who were there stay behind networks. They were designed to. Uh, be activated in the event of a Russian, supposedly in the event of a Russian takeover of Western Europe after during the Cold War. But um, what what they actually did in, in practice, it was really more about uh, keeping Western Europe in the American or the U.S. kind of sphere of influence, and uh, therefore on, it focused on governments and the, the direction that governments were taking, and obviously their economic policies, etc. But in Italy, uh, these groups under the command of NATO, carried out bombings that killed dozens, in one case, maybe over 80 people in Italy, at a bus station in Italy. Uh, And it was made to look like it was uh, the work of a group aligned with a kind of communist or leftist government that was moving away from the West and towards Russia, or towards the Soviet Union. So this is the kind of, uh, you know, tactics they use. But people are, in those situations, people, it's hard for people to dismiss it because it's, They've seen it. Everybody was there. They know a bomb went off, and the question is who did it. And if they're given evidence that it was this group, they're not going to question it so much. But um, the other, there's a, there's a story just from this week uh, where I saw it on RT, but it was study conducted by some group in the U.S. where they were able to convince people, uh, volunteers for this experiment, essentially, uh, they were able to convince these people in three hours that they had committed a crime that they had not committed by basically they got some background information on them from their families so they could use use those pieces of information to uh, to kind of prime the person and 
and to give validity to the story if this person was telling them true things about their past uh, that they knew, knew, knew uh, were true, they were then able to insert in other elements that led to a situation where they had committed a crime. And um, in three hours of this kind of conditioning, they, these people then were went out and very convincingly told a third party about the crime that they had committed and all the details. And it had never happened. Uh, you know, the, it reminds me of uh, this story that is depicted in uh, the DVD and, um, that is available on the internet titled Evidence of Revision, where you have this witness who, right after the shooting of Bob Kennedy, Robert Kennedy, saw a woman in a polka dress repeating, we killed it, we killed it. And then there is a transcript, audio transcript of an interview, the interview of this witness, by a police officer. And you see the mind job this police officer does on the witness. A witness that should be rep- uh, respected. She's not a, a culprit. She's not even a, a suspect. Mm-hmm. And this guy, over the course of what, one hour maybe, he managed to flip totally the mind of this poor girl from, I did see this woman in a pop-cack dress and she was repeating, we killed him, to poor man overwhelmed by fear, by pressure, by doubt, manipulation, lies, who end up saying, oh, yeah, well, uh, I'm not sure I saw it, I'm not sure anymore what I saw, what I heard, and, uh, and uh, she vanished. Yeah. Yeah, in this climate, it this effect we're talking about works on most people, but on other people, it's something else happens. They they recognize it as a safe climate for them to come out. And so you get people like this Fox News presenter, Judge Jeanine Pirro, giving a 10-minute rant the other week, talking to the audience. You're in danger. I'm in danger. We're at war, and this is not going to stop. After this week's brutal terrorist attacks in France, hopefully everyone now gets it. Goes on to say that we need to arm Muslims to the teeth so that they take out the Islamic fanatics and then we simply look the other way. Uh, it's just a, a completely hate-filled rant. It's just so... What a maroon! <laughs> what an oh. ignoramus! <laughs> what a tarara goon, D.A. An ignorant maroon... Ignorant, but not so stupid, because notice the first words. We are in danger. And when you look at this operation, they have a strong symbolic dimension, a uh, a meaning that people can refer to. It's sad, but it's true. You have millions of people dying in Iraq. It doesn't affect us much. Water Center, Charlie Hebdo, it's things that people know, people identify to. It's part of their identity that is threatened. Therefore, those highly symbolic events are not only the death of people, but it's only a direct threat to our very own feeling of security, which is the, the most important thing for uh, individuals, mm. feeling of security. And uh, as she says, we are in danger. Yeah. She's uh, getting well paid by the CIA, I'm sure. One of them, one of the more rational, in quotes, explanations people are being offered for why this happened, if they are allowed to 
extend their their worldview and put some context into what's going on. It's the reassuring words from the right, especially in Europe at the moment, but it's common everywhere, where they say, yes, there's a problem. And they will also say the European, the French and the uh, British rightist parties will say, yes, we should not be over there in their countries blowing them up. They'll qualify that by saying the main problem is that we have too many Muslims here in Europe. And this has been a kind of a brewing brewing narrative since 9-11. And it's got to the point now where it's it's been, it's been taken as fact. I mean, the fact is that we're talking about a tiny percentage of the populations in Europe. But they are getting a platform to make it sound like Europe is not only overrun with Muslims, but they're about to take over and institute Sharia law across Europe. And, oh, their favorite line at the moment, there are Sharia law ruled, no-go zones. Yeah. Mm. Well, uh, Fox, in European cities. Well, Fox News has actually backtracked on that. Uh, have they? Yes, and I apologize to their viewers <laughs> that it was completely wrong. And this was this woman again, uh, Judge Janine uh, Piero, uh, as part of her interview where she was talking about they have to bomb them and bomb them and bomb them again and then bomb them a little bit more and uh, some more bombs. And then she had some guy on who was basically saying that uh, a city in the UK, Birmingham, was effectively a completely controlled uh, Muslim city, which was effectively a no-go area for anybody who wasn't Muslim. I mean, it was it was like something out of the onion, or uh, inconceivable. Exactly, it's inconceivable. But uh, that's um, that's what's happening. And I mean, it's hard it's hard to know what to do with that kind of stuff because it's on Fox News and it's meant to be. I mean, they don't present themselves as satire, but it it absolutely could have been on the Onion or any other satire website, like lampooning, you know, just making fun of of. Uh, a kind of a generalized, uh, but but this message implication of goes, yeah, it goes beyond Fox News now. Oh I mean, yeah, this is a part of the the constant narrative from oh. these parties, which yeah. now have up to thirty or more percent of the electorate. And were, just to make it in France and the UK. Yeah, well, I mean, just, but too many Muslims kick well, them out. Of That's the message. Did, did, of course, but what I'm, what I'm saying is that that Fox News coming out and saying unequivocally that Birmingham, a city of I think over a million people was fully Muslim, that there were no non-Muslims in it, and that Christians and like white Christians in the UK could not go there. Is a step beyond. It's a big step beyond. It's ridiculous, you know. And they presented it as a fact. They had this guy on a talking head who's telling people that this was the truth. Now, for me, that's just amazing. But I mean, I'm not surprised in America because there's so much absolute bullshit on the TV in America um, that. That I, I'm, I'm not surprised that it went there. Although at the same time, I am surprised that that they actually, uh, you know, stated it so unequivocally on supposedly a major factual news uh, organization's uh, program. So it's uh, there are several lies in this no uh, no go zone uh, fantasy. I've lived in Marseille, the city in France with the highest percentage of Muslim population. I've lived in Marseille for 11 years, and I went in uh, the so-called uh, no-go zone. French media report the same lies, actually. 
they describe, they develop the same lies. First, there's a fundamental paradox. You have this Caucasian journalist who say, yes, I went there, these are no-go zones. How can you go there if it's a no-go zone for, for Caucasians? Besides, indeed, in France, in our UK, other countries, you have suburbs, very poor suburbs. Ostracized, victim of racist, or segregation. Where the public sphere has totally stopped investing. Roads are not repaired. You don't have uh, uh, any public institution, like hospitals or uh, decent schools. Despite those very unfair and very difficult living conditions, most of those uh, immigrant populations do not turn to violence. And that's very telling, actually, and uh, almost surprising. And I think that's one aspect, one part of the plan of the elites that failed, is that they didn't manage to turn the Muslim population, despite all those efforts, all those provocations, into violence. Yeah, there's a real problem in the media. Obviously, it's not strange, I suppose, given the years or decades-long process of polarization of the population, which effectively strips people of any sense of empathy or um, consideration for the feelings of other people. Um, but there's a real problem in the media in that they simply don't do that. They don't try and turn the whole situation around just for a moment and uh, walk a little while in for example, the Muslims, and when we say Muslims here, we're not talking about all Muslims in the world because there's you know, 1.5 billion Muslims in the world. The vast majority of, the majority of them aren't in the Middle East. But even just, you take the Muslims in the Middle East, you just switch it around and imagine that Middle Eastern countries, as in you know, uh, Iraq, Iran, uh, Syria, etc., and North Africa, let's say, the Maghreb, which is officially all the Middle East. Imagine those countries were... Uh, the kind of at the top of the heap in this world, and that uh, for a period of the last fifteen or, or more years, <clears throat> those countries had been kind of um, periodically invading Western European countries and even America, uh, and kind of colonizing them in one way or another, either directly or economically. Um, colonization or um, occupation, they had killed a few million people, Christians, let's say in Western Europe and America and that Christians in Western Europe were kind of, uh, you know, disenfranchised. Um, there were tin pot dictators set up or um, and the people, Christians in Western Europe had a pretty low standard of living, let's say, comparatively and generally speaking were being demonized by these Muslim leaders as barbarians and, you know, after being attacked and occupied and been killed, then they're called a bunch of uh, kind of backward atavistic animals <clears throat> and their your religion is being repeatedly denigrated, etc. How would you feel? You know, that's not to say that anybody would uh, you know, start kind of carrying out terror attacks or anything like that, but simply how would you feel, you know? And and would you feel, I mean, it, do, do you see that situation when you apply it to yourself as, as an unjust situation? Uh, I think anybody would. But again, like I'm saying in the media, that's never done. It's never turned around and simply 
no one's encouraged to imagine what it would be like if the same thing that has been going on for the past few decades uh, in, in the Middle East had been going on in Europe. Uh, and that the people of Europe had been subjected to the same things that the people of the Middle East have been subjected to. You're never encouraged to do that. And that would, I mean, if everybody was to do that, including politicians, well then, but that's proposing a kind of like a utopian, uh, at this point, utopian, like a normal world, a normal human reaction to a situation is at this point apparently uh, idealistic kind of like airy fairy pie in the sky reality, which is bizarre and kind of suggests that we're living in a fairly dark time. You know? Yeah. What is even more unfair about complaining about too many Muslims in our countries is that when you look why those minorities reach UK or France, it is that at the end of World War II, let's take the example of France, the country was in ruin, destroyed by bombing in the war, and it had to be rebuilt. And these are the French authorities and the French company who imported this foreign labor force from North Africa to rebuild the country and do the very tough work that most white Frenchies did not want to do. So all those Muslim population were imported to serve the interest of France were to some extent exploited because the wage was very low and the work was really crappy. <clears throat> and now we complain about too many Muslims in our country. I mean, it's blaming the victim here. Yeah, I mean, they did not choose that. I mean, like we were talking about before, this narrative that, uh, as Neil was talking about, narrative dominant discourse of you know, Muslims are going to take over Western Europe and impose Sharia law and, you know, smoking hookahs and wearing wearing nightgowns during the daytime. Horror of horrors. Uh, it's, it's been going on for a long time and it's obviously nonsense, but it's hyped up into a possible reality uh, because of these kind of terror attacks, uh, but also has to be placed in the context of decades of Western imperial aggression against Middle Eastern countries. So if not, if you take away the kind of what the West has done to the Middle East, if you take away that history, there would be no reason for anyone to even suggest that Muslims were a problem because they wouldn't be a problem. There wouldn't even be the suggestion. You, wouldn't have not, you would have nothing to back up your argument that Muslims are a problem because there would be no animosity. There would be no supposed even even semblance of a clash of civilizations because there would be no clash. So the clash is the problem. Who's causing the clash? When people talk about a clash of civilization, where does the clash come from? Despite what they say, people don't just clash because they have different beliefs. Generally speaking, uh, normal people are interested in other cultures as normal human beings. And as long as no one is trying to steal from me or, or, or steal my women and you know take my jobs or whatever, then people don't have a problem. People generally don't do that. There's a, there's a, uh, an overriding uh, tendency in normal human beings towards cooperation and in terms of business, towards trade and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So uh, clash just doesn't happen as a fundamental aspect of uh, two people having different religious beliefs or thinking differently about something. If I like red and you like blue, we're going to have a clash of civilizations here, you know? Uh, that's ridiculous. It, it goes against everything that's understood and known about normal human behavior. 
So the point is, if, there, if you're talking about a clash of civilizations, someone caused that clash. So you look at the context. How did, it, how did it arrive? What's clashing here? Who are the clashers? It's not the ordinary people in the street. I would just like to say that <clears throat> I love Big Brother. Go ahead. Good. Big Brother last week you predicted... The show? No. Oh. Big Brother. You know, the NSA. Oh. Last week, the NSA predicted a wave of terror attacks in Europe. And they got it right. That's amazing. Wow. How did they know? Terror scares in Belgium, Italy, Germany, UK, and Ireland. Yay. I'm not sure how that happened, but apparently there was a terror scare, a bomb scare in Ireland as well. They also want the Irish for their freedoms and cows and the great oh, yeah. because of our... <laughs> They hate us because of our taters. Our taters. And, yeah, the, the Belgian incident, I'll just describe briefly. Um, two people were killed, actually. The cops there said that they managed to stop an impending assault on themselves, on cops. They found Kalashnikovs, explosives, and police uniforms during raids near the border with Germany. They believed that they, the extremists intended to carry out an attack disguised as police officers. So not only should you be afraid of the terrorists, you should also be afraid of the police officers because you never know when they're also the terrorists. So, um, I see dead people. I see dead people too. Luckily though, our leaders are sorting this problem out. They've come up with a solution. They've decided to send boots on the ground into Syria and to increase the war there. Uh, in fact, we're now, I believe, on Iraq War number four or five. I can't remember. So, yes, the U.S. is sending 1,000 troops to train. Hang on, I'll read the AP wire here. U.S. Pentagon sending 1,000 troops to train ISIS terrorists. I'm, I mean, moderate jihadists. No, sorry, hang on. Um, Non-evil Muslims. No, that's not it. Shit. Uh, the good guys. Yay. Uh, France is joining in. They're going to send Western Europe's only aircraft carrier to help to, you know, keep the natives down. Um, so it's not looking good for Syria, but that's good for us because it means we're going to have less terrorists in Europe, right? Uh, it, yeah, uh, you point the finger at something uh, important here. Can you please explain to me, because I have this ambitious, I have difficulties to understand. This judge uh, lady from uh, Fox News, she says, we have to wage war in this, uh, against Muslims in those Middle East countries. The way of doing it is by funding uh, yeah, you see, rebels. This so, is where her staged rant was not just a spickle fuel, you know, like a uh, off the cuff of the moment. Oh, I'm me, I'm angry, and I'm going to get righteous. That's how she pretended. But she inserted the U.S. strategy into yeah, it by saying, we've got to give them as many weapons as possible. So they train those jihadists, rebels in the Middle East, those very same jihadists, who come back to Europe well, no, and commit terrorism? No, you're missing it. No, let me clarify something for you, Pierre. These are the good guys. You see? There's good guys and there's bad guys. And the what? bad guys want to kill us for our freedoms. The good guys want to kill the leaders we don't like in the Middle East. Because, And how do you make sure that the good guy doesn't become a bad guy? Oh, well, we're going to work. We're working out the details later. Later. Yeah. Why is that too late, hopefully? Oh, it's all good. We got it. We got this. 
Go ahead. Watch TV. Just, just, just look away now. Uh, I thought it was hilarious, actually. In in the Ukraine, uh, the Ukraine has uh, exploded again. Eastern Ukraine. People there are saying the fighting is fierce as it has been since the summer. So the the ceasefire is definitely off. But what sparked it this week was a um, an incident where a bus was blown up uh, somewhere like in the border zone between eastern Ukraine and the rest of it. So Kiev immediately said, oh, it was the rebels. They blew up this bus full of civilians. And then they held, they organized protests in Kiev under the banner of, I'll find it now. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Uh, Je suis Volnokovka. I guess that's the place where this bus was blown up. Uh, The Ukrainian government is equating the Charlie massacre in Paris with the killings of 13 people riding a bus, which happened at a checkpoint near the town of Volnokovka in eastern Ukraine on last Tuesday. Kiev, of course, blamed the, the rebel forces and then came up with this slogan, just we Volnok Kovka, and had, they had MPs holding a banner, and basically the fallout of that is Poroshenko makes a statement saying, Ukraine has demonstrated that it is a peaceful European nation. The night, this night, last Tuesday, our cyborgs are demonstrating bravery, patriotism, and heroism at the Donetsk airport. Showing how Ukraine is to be defended. Yeah, that's what happened. They lost Donetsk airport after a several months struggle last week. And this was a massive counteroffensive to try and get it back. I'm not kidding, by the way. He did say this night our cyborgs, which is apparently the government pet name for the right sector Kiev forces. Isn't that cute? Cyborgs. How can you explain that Poroshenko, in the very same sentence, states that his country, Ukraine, is a peaceful nation, and a few words later, describe how his soldiers have been fighting for the... Can you fight and be peaceful at the same time? Basically, Poroshenko and Yatsenov are like very, very new to this game of taking liberal, highfalutin words and using them as a cover ideology for being the most brutal, rapacious psychopaths you can possibly imagine. They're just crap at it. And so the truth tends to slip between the lines with these guys a lot. It's like Yatsenyuk the week before in Berlin. Oh, my God. He makes a speech in front of German press, and he says, you know, um, in stand-up against Russia, you know, never ease the sanctions, you know. Ukraine is part of Europe. And that Putin, my God, that Putin, he keeps trying to rewrite history and, and we should never again let Russia invade Germany as it did in 1945. And it was just like silence in the room. <laughs> because, of course, the established history, understood by Germans as well, is that, yes, from the Nazi point of view, Russia invaded Germany. So he was being honest, maybe. Yeah. They see it as a bad thing. You've got to understand that yeah. his people, Western Ukrainians, lost in the war, and this is their revenge. For a neo-Nazi, the invasion or the liberation of Germany by a Russian troop is a, was a tragedy. It was a tragedy because they didn't get to express their true nature, which is to be destructive, hateful, 
um, rapacious people. And now they're like, this is awesome because in this climate, we can be free again. They, they That's why they attack ethnic Russians in the East with such relish. They, they love it. Talking about Ukraine, there was this news that there was this news that uh, re-emerged in the media concerning Gazprom, the Russian gas supplier. That oh, was... this is glorious. This is Putin's latest counter move. It's not getting much attention. Uh, okay, so what happened? There was this this article is pretty old. It's an article from 2012, maybe published first by the Daily Mail. Which station. article? Hmm? Which article? Uh, the article by the Daily Mail about Gazprom, the Russian gas supplier that would cut its supplies to Ukraine. No, this but is no, no, no. Something that, that's been going around, but it's a, I don't know how many people have come across it. Hopefully not many, but it's a bogus. Yes, uh, it is. Article. It's from 2009. 2009. Uh, when it was the first um, kind of crisis with Ukrainian gas uh, supply transferring through uh, Ukraine, Russian gas transferring through Ukraine. Um, and there were problems back then. I mean, it's a long time ago, politically speaking. Uh, at that point, Russia, appeared, uh, just for a short period of time, cut off uh, their gas supply to through Ukraine and thereby uh, cut it off yeah. into Europe, but it only lasted for a short period of time. But for some reason, somebody on the web, <coughs> some irresponsible person on the web, I think it was the guy Zero Hedge, yes. uh, who owns the website Zero Hedge, so then, uh, put it out there as, uh, you know, oh, it started, you know, blah, 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 blah. Russia has uh, cut off gas supplies to Europe, and it's not what actually happened. No. And, uh, yes, uh, that but, was, but, but there, was a there might be some, it, there might be some truth to it. Yeah. Well, because Gazprom did not cut. No, 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 no. no, no. Gas it, it, it's Ukraine, much smarter than that. Hear me out. Hear the me pipeline. Out. No, but here, hang on a minute. The distinction needs to be made. Yes. This article that we're talking about, that people are No, no, this isn't the article I'm talking that's about. What, that's the one he's talking about. No, okay. that's, been, the, that's the one that Pierre's talking about. Pierre said to me, the article from the Daily Mail that said yeah. Gazprom or Russia had shut okay. off gas to Western Europe, and it's, it's doing the rounds on the web, and it's not true, okay. yes. because it's a 2009 article talking about a totally different story, and Russia has not decided to cut off gas supply to Europe in the middle of winter, blah, 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 which is what this guy said, because he gave a link directly to the Daily Mail article from 2009 and said, this is, has happened. Which, yeah, it happened five years ago. But So carry on. Two days ago. Agence France Press. Gazprom warns EU to link to Turkey pipeline or lose Russian gas. Now, this is, you're right, this is different. This isn't yes. Russia going, fine, then we're going to cut the gas. But it's going to have the same effect. Effect if it's if it's seen through, or you can see, short of that, you can see us putting pressure on, on, on the European Union. Yeah, and uh, shunting uh, Ukraine well, as well. Hold on, let me explain what it is first. So, in December, the Russians made that astonishing move where they said, right, screw, screw the South Stream pipeline. It's going through Turkey. What was the South Stream? The South, well, the South Stream wants to be an Ukraine. additional yeah. pipeline. That's on top of the North Stream that largely goes to Germany, through the Baltic Sea, and the existing transits that go to Ukraine and then, and then through Ukraine to Eastern European countries. Yes. What they're saying now is that once the Turkish Stream is built and set up and ready to go, they're going to direct existing gas supplies, some 63 billion cubic meters yeah. per day, I don't know, uh, that currently goes to Ukraine. They're going to switch it down to the new Turkish one. So they're going to close, effectively, yeah. the supply of gas that goes to and through Ukraine. Right. Because they're tired of seafooding by Ukrainian uh, individuals. So. Yeah. 
and, and because it's uh, a big uh, big source of profit for Ukraine. Okay, but so here, here just just to give just to point out that this isn't even anywhere close to what this guy was saying. Sixteen percent of Europe ga- Europe's gas comes through Ukraine. Okay, and in so two years' cost, time, so that's sixteen percent. And the planned South Stream that was meant is totally separate, which was meant to come through Bulgaria and go through. What they've done now is they've cut that off and said, okay, it's not going through Bulgaria because the EU bureaucrats are screwing us around and acting like assholes here. And we're not going to, because they had already started different sections uh, of the pipeline. The South Stream pipeline had been built in European, uh, Eastern European countries. Or had been, they had begun to build it. They basically screwed over those countries. That Russia screwed them over because the EU, EU is screwing Russia over, but said, listen, okay, forget about South Stream. The gas now is going to come through a new pipeline through Turkey, and you all have to buy exactly. figure out how you're going to get it sure. from Turkey, possibly through the, at the Turkish uh, Greek border. You have to build a new pipeline and rewrite all of your plans. That's where it's coming in now. And but it, it's unfair. And we will allocate, as in, we'll pass, we'll, we'll transfer what would have come through Ukraine because we're stopping. Uh, gas coming through Ukraine, essentially, oh, that's the plan, and it's going to go through South Stream. So now, basically, we'll have Nord Stream, which goes into Germany, mm-hmm. and South Stream, which will go through Turkey and be available at the border in Greece for yeah. Europe. And, and frankly, it's fair. I mean, yeah, uh, totally fair. Russia could say, when you see the dirty tricks used by the Western Empire, Russia could say, okay, no more gas for Europe. That would be a big problem. Well, they don't say that. They just provide gas to the border of Europe. And then Europe manage its own internal logistics, and we'd have to define its own pipeline to uh, feed the uh, Italian, French, uh, but it's a difficult and other markets. It's a difficult markets. game to play, obviously, because I mean it's not a one-sided thing. Russia can't just say, "Okay, no more gas for Europe." People are saying, "You know, here's here there's a lot over the past few years." Russia has but this. But this is even smarter. Russia has this, this. is way smarter. Russia has this threat where they can simply cut off gas to Europe and say, "Now, what are you going to do?" But you know what? Ru- that's Russia needs to sell its gas. Uh, yeah, it's a, it has a it has a, an economy that is just uh, in the process of going. It can't just suddenly turn off gas to its customer. You know, you're right. You're right. We From cannot, its own point of view. I mean, that's not impossible, but uh, there's a cost. It yeah, will be a major problem well, we for don't know Europe, that. but it will be a major problem for Russia that is currently hit by right. low oil prices. Attack on the ruble, so purposes, declining it's, it's growth. Possible for them to do that, but they're uh, trying to maneuver. It has in a, a way, price as well. Yeah, they're trying to maneuver yeah. in such a way where they maximize pressure on Europe, maximize cost to Europe, and minimize cost to Russia. Do you notice, still get to do you notice they're doing it at Europe's weakest point, Greece? Yeah, and uh, because Greece, Greece is returning to, to exit Europe because yeah. on the next Sunday, 25th of January, there will be elections, and the current uh, favorite, number one, according and to surveys. Alexis, Alex Tsipras, 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 is a, which is a, what they call euphemistically a yeah, Euro. Yeah, looks like he's going to win. And, uh, Not an outright majority, but a majority. They so, are anti-austerity and, uh, and their mandate is to leave to leave the euro. But uh, as one European Central Banker said this week, um, <laughs> he said for Greece to leave the eurozone would be extremely dangerous move. For Greece and for the rest of Europe as well. well. Why is that so bad? Because it's not just a matter of leaving the euro; it's also basically leaving the European Union, and we should not be sending such signals. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they are adamant it's not going to happen uh, because 
if you understand, if you read between the lines, first, it's threatening risk of retaliation. If you leave, you're going to have to pay the price. It's going to be a high price. But Greece has lost so much in the hand of international banksters that he doesn't have much to lose anymore. And the second implicit message is, if we open the door to Greece, that's the end of uh, of Europe, because other countries which oh, apply this precedent, and many countries are getting ripe and realizing that uh, Europe costs more than uh, it just more cost and benefit. Yeah, I mean the Russians here are capitalizing on the weaknesses of. Europe and the weaknesses of Europe are entirely uh, the fault of the European elite who have run Europe into the ground over the past several years. And Russians are aware of this. And it's a very good strategic move, as, as Neil's been saying. It's uh, they're playing a strategy here where <clears throat> they're getting they're they're attacking the weak spot, but in a in a smart way, not in any kind of overt attack. They're not invading Greece, but they're using economics to go for Greece because Greece has for quite a few years now been making sounds or noises about possibly leaving the European Union because they've had such a horrible experience yeah. as part of the European Union. And of course, uh, along with that, there's other, I mean, just north of Greece, you have Bulgaria, who is very pissed off about the fact that Bulgaria is the one that got screwed over effectively by the EU because of its uh, uh, kind of uh, its, its, its ridiculous uh, strictures and demands that was making on Russia as part of the South Stream uh, and Russia cancelled the South Stream then and put it through Turkey Bulgaria lost out because they were going to get a large amount of, I think they were going to get like was it like 500 million or something I mean, it wasn't that much, it was a large amount of money per year in transit fees, you know they had calculated that yeah. into, their, into their budgets and all that kind of stuff now Bulgaria doesn't get that, Bulgaria is not happy with the EU, Bulgaria is right on uh, Greece's northern border on top of uh, north of Bulgaria, then you have Romania, and uh, which is a recently uh, acquired. a recently acquired EU vassal state, which may be thinking twice about it as well. If and these things go down, and then right next to that you've got Moldova and then Ukraine. Yeah. And Moldova has is, has a fracture point as well because of the uh, the what do you call them the separatists in Transnistria. Uh, yeah. So I mean, there's that whole region left of the. You know, west of the Black Sea of those, those EU countries that are all potential uh, you know, pressure points. Of, the neocons are right. I mean, Russia is rebuilding what it lost, but it's doing it fairly. It's doing it fairly, exactly. Yeah, and uh, another factor to take into account is that those countries that are close to Russia, because of this proximity, have a substantial share of their trade foreign trade with Russia. Mm-hmm. So these are the countries that are the most impacted by mm-hmm. the sanctions and decided by NATO and against the, Russia, and that for which those countries are paying. And it's like poor countries. And the Russians have actually said, uh, commenting on the potential, the possibility that Greece would leave the EU, that they would immediately offer Greece the uh, opportunity to join the Kennedy Eurasian Union. Did and, they say that? Yes. Because they also said, you know, anyone who's no longer in the EU, well, the sanctions Russia's sanctions, the agricultural sanctions, would no longer force apply to right. them. Right. <laughs> and, yeah. you know, and the pipeline, whether it stops, it stops in Turkey, but it stops at the Bosphorus. And what is on the other side of the Bosphorus Strait? Greece land. Greece land, yes. Yeah. You know, yeah, I mean, and this, if this all happened, if something like this were to happen, or if the EU and the US are afraid that something like this were to happen, i.e. Eastern European countries would effectively fall away from the EU and side with uh, Europe, 
you can you could if that ever happens on the day that, that happens you'll be able to look back and see clearly how the cause the reason it happened corruption of yeah. european uh and, and u.s uh, leaders yeah it would be a a nice uh, twist in the story because the way greece was destroyed by international banking system was uh was tragic and yeah. very unfair mm-hmm. and uh, as a, a collateral victim of this uh, potential switch by Greece is the euro currency. One more nail in the euro currency coffin and uh, you had this news in the, in the media recently where the uh, Swiss franc increased by 30% over 14 minutes because the Swiss financial authorities, central bank, announced that they would stop paying the Swiss franc to the euro. What does it mean? It means that they will let the exchange rate fluctuate. And like before, in the past, what they were doing, since they were not printing like crazy at like the US and to some extent Europe, they had to keep buying dollars and euros and selling Swiss francs to keep a low exchange rate for the Swiss francs. And they cannot do that anymore. So they have to... Uh, Actually, the quantitative easing, the crazy printing initiated by uh, the Fed, is contaminating all the nations. Well, well, if you want to have a fair exchange rate for your export, you have to de facto devaluate your currency, i.e. print like crazy. And you know, the only way, if they see this happening, the only way they'll be able to keep it from happening, or try to keep it from happening, which is doomed to failure as well, is to get in there and destabilize. Any government that shows any inclination of going eastwards instead of westwards, yeah. it'll be a target for destabilization. Oh, yeah. That's, That's all cool. they know how to do. And that's terrorism. a worse situation. You know? The Syriza party in Greece has to have a serious plan. Uh, one of the first would be making sure they control the military and security forces who will have long since been riddled with um, the right-thinking people, Washington agents. So... It's it's a long road ahead for anyone, but at least it's it's, it's always good to see these plus rigging the elections. So there are many opportunities to uh, to change the fate of uh, Greece in favor of the Western Empire. You can ring the election. You can uh, toss in a few terrorist events. You can orchestrate a coup, a military coup, for example, uh, or maybe you can subvert the the newly elected leader who finally won't remove Greece from the uh, EU because of pride, because of threats. So there's still many things that can happen. Greece sure. is still part of Darn Europe. You were talking about currencies there. You, you mentioned QE, which is basically the central bank printing money to save its life um, in the U.S. Now, that current round of it is ending in the U.S., but sure. the, the European Central Bank announced it's going to start which was supposedly, like, rule number one. You know, in the real fight club is nobody talks about fight club. Well, rule number one of the ECB was you do not print money. Rule number two was you do not print money. They have just started. Well, they're going to probably start. That's one major crack in the European consensus. Because Germany, for several historical factors, in particular, a very strong inflation in in the 30s, remember, those German citizens carrying wheelbarrows of nuts to buy bread and lose 10 billion marks, Deutsche marks, uh, nuts. 
they've been traumatized by that. They still, the memory is still fresh enough, so they don't want to fall into hyperinflation again. So they're totally against what is called quantitative easing, printing money, inflationary monetary uh, creation. What happens while to- other countries advocate money creation under the pretext, false pretext that uh, this way you inject money in the economy, in the co- in the companies, citizen, more consumption, more production, growth rate, higher wages, everybody's happy. But as fallacious, the truth is that as money, fallacious, yeah, yes. it is a lie. It is orthogonal to truth. The tru- <laughs> and the truth is that this money printed massively doesn't end up in your pocket or in mine. It ends up in the pocket of bankers. And the proof is that when you look at inflation in the U.S., if all this money, those billions and billions freshly created, ended up in our pockets, in pockets of cities, and there would be more consumption, more demand, and therefore price would increase. Price for bread and cars and et cetera, et cetera, what we buy. It does not, which strongly suggests that this money went in the pockets of bankers that used it to speculate. And the proof is that the markets where bankers traditionally speculate, i.e. commodities and stocks and to some extent real estate, have been bubbling like crazy. So this quantitative easing is terrible for Europe, but we follow the fate of the US. It's terrible economically. It's also terrible politically because it drives a major wedge between Germany and France. The couple around which the all European dynamics aggregated over the past decades. And uh, and you can see the results already because the, the, the collapse in uh, the value of the euro currency relative to the dollar and even more relative to the Swiss francs is mainly due to the potential um, Greek events and to the coming quantitative easing uh, orchestrated by the European Central Bank. I just have a crazy thought. You know, when they, a lot of people say, where did all that money go? You know? Mm-hmm. And there was a lot of it, you know? There was, what was it, $800 billion or something like that in total? Yeah. Almost a trillion dollars in total. Where did that money go? And I'm wondering if a lot of it, if that, that banking scam, scandal, was twofold. Obviously, it gave banks, it allowed them to repossess people's properties and uh, it generally impoverished the people. But it took, maybe it took a lot of money out of circulation and was a way to kind of guard against uh, some kind of a, a tipping point where you would fall into kind of a, a hyperinflation maybe in the US or in Western Europe or something. If you take a bunch of money, money that you previously injected into the system, you know, fake money effectively, but take it back out essentially, you know what I mean, to to stabilize the system a little bit. You know, that I don't know if that's true or not, but... It, what you say is, I mean, is there someone with hundreds of billions of dollars in a bank account as a result of the banking crisis? Do banks... I mean, I haven't seen well, any Bernanke banks... Bernanke was asked where it went, and he said it went to central banks in Europe. Yeah, but it, and then got injected back into the economy. No. No, no, no that, that's what the twist is. In speculation, that's what, uh, what, what I described. Like, yeah, but somebody the ends up with it. Hmm? Somebody ends up with it. Uh, or yes. does it just disappear? Like, it's funny money, so it, it just evaporates. It's virtual money, first. And uh, it can become tangible to the acquisition of commodities, for example. You can buy uh, big lands. You can buy uh, mining companies, mining sites. So it's a way to tangibilize this virtual money. But it's also used massively 
in speculative markets. Just to give you an idea, and uh, it sheds a light on where the money went, today the derivative market is 10 times the world GDP. Today you have a bank like JP Morgan that holds in assets, what they call assets, maybe you should call the liability, $1 trillion. I mean, the US GDP is 8,000 uh, billion. The GDP is 8 trillion. 8 trillion, so one eighth. One eighth, yeah, 8,000 uh, 8, 8 trillion. So uh, one single bank. And this quantity is in Europe, let's not be mistaken. Again, it's not for citizens, it's not for economy, it's to save European banks. Like quantitative easing in the US. That's called quantitative easing what it is, injecting of uh, money, printing money. Yeah, kind of. It's not yeah, to simplify, let's say it's uh, creating money that you lend at 0% or give to financial institutions, uh, central banks, and uh, subsequently uh, private banks. And one of the reasons. The problem will rightly emphasize that quantitative easing came to a halt in the U.S., which mm -hmm. is true. And you might see one result of this halt in the sudden drop in some uh, markets. S&P 500 that uh, experienced one of these major drops in history. Some drops in uh, se several sectors of commodity market. Um, and to make things worse, I think some financial institutions experienced major loss in the gold market and the failed attack against ruble. When you attack ruble through what we described previously, naked short sale, where effectively you buy, you sell ruble before buying it, you make a lot of money if the ruble goes down as you plan because you sell at uh, uh, 60 and you buy at 40. So you make 20 profit. But the problem, the ruble didn't go down as expected. So all those naked short sales led to massive financial losses. And to make things worse, usually these financial instruments have some integrated leverage. So it means uh, when you put one on the table, you can win 100, 1,000, or you can lose 100 or 1,000. To gold, as we have described previously, there is very strong tensions on the gold market for several reasons. One of the main reasons is that it is a reference international currency where it has been for centuries. It was replaced during the Bretton Woods meetings by the dollar. And the way the US economy has been surviving is through the compulsory purchase of dollars by other countries. Today, in the world, if you want to buy oil, you have to pay with dollar, generating an artificial demand, an unjustified demand for dollar. Today, when China sells goods to the U.S. or other countries, in exchange, you get dollars, accumulating huge foreign reserves of dollar currency. All this artificial forced demand on dollar maintain this illusory high value level for the dollar. It shouldn't be the case because of the massive creation of dollar money. So, I'd buy that actually, for a dollar. <laughs> yeah, maybe people will not fight for long for dollars. Because what is coming is that, <clears throat> actually, when you think about it, these are the foreign countries that hold massive reserves in dollars that have pay for the lifestyle, for the expenses, for the expenses of the U.S. economy of the, uh, for the USA, because the reserves in U.S. dollars keep eroding 
due to the massive creation by the Fed of newly printed U.S. notes. And on the gold market, so the illusion of the strong U.S. dollar is the lie U.S. economy, and more than that, the whole world economy is based. If you remove this illusion of a strong U.S. international currency, everything collapses. And the only competitor, the main competitor of the U.S. dollar as an international currency, currency is gold. So you have to suppress the price of gold. How do you do? First, you sell, sell, sell. But at one point, you have no more physical gold to sell. And uh, I suspect that in uh, the U.S. reserves are not 8,000 tons. Uh, like claimed, it's much less than that. I suspect the one of the reasons why many countries like Venezuela, like Mexico, Germany, Netherlands, Belgium, asking for the repatriation of the physical gold from London and Washington is because they know that soon there will no, not be any physical gold available. And today you have Russia and China that are purchasing at a rate of 80 tons of gold, physical gold, a week. That's 10,000 tons of gold a year, while the world production is 2,500 tons. Russia and China together are buying four times the world production. And you can even see right now the big gold operator like COMEX or Shanghai Exchange Platform that see their gold reserves disappearing. They have no more reserves. They are not holding any more physical gold. So what I'm going to is what is dangerous for financial institutions? Once they, they, had, they were done with all their physical gold. They have sold everything they had. They used virtual gold, naked short sales, like they did for the ruble. Selling virtual gold before buying it. When it goes down, again, it's interesting. You make profit. But when it goes up, like it's been doing over the, the last 15 days, you had an increase in 15% of the value of gold, the price of gold, it means you lose a lot. And if you want to keep suppressing the price of gold, not only you have to make it short sell gold, virtual gold, but you have to keep increasing the amounts to counteract the increasing real demand in physical gold, mostly generating from China and Russia. So right now, the financial house of cards is so unstable that the question in the financial sphere, media financial sphere, is not is it going to collapse. It's what is the first card, the first domino that's going to drop? And there are so many that, has, that are oscillating. The U.S. currency, the euro currency, the integration of the euro, the tension of the gold market, the, the overvalued stock market, the, the very unstable commodity market, that you, and it's the derivative market. All that is so... The oil market. The oil market as well, you're right. That's doing something bonkers. All that is so intricately related if one falls, everything goes down with it. How is the ruble doing? The ruble is trading around uh, 65 rubles for one uh, US dollar. So that's... Uh, stabilized. Yeah, it kind of stabilized. And uh, now things are getting much better because in 2015, the repayment of loans in dollars by, US, by Russian operators is much lower. dropped from 60 billion to 20 billion. So the demand for U.S. dollars, if you are a if you are a Russian businessman, you have to repay less U.S. denominated loans, so you don't have to sell your robots and buy dollars to repay your uh, your loans 
Therefore, you weaken the ruble currency less. George Soros made a hush-hush visit to Kiev last week. And uh, he also published another one of his uh, insider articles in the New York Review of Books. He says, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but it's essential that by April 2015, Ukraine should be engaged in a radical reform program for a realistic chance of succeeding. By that, he means your IMF imposed mass structural adjustments. Otherwise, he's not thinking of the economic consequences. Otherwise, Putin could convincingly argue that Russia's problems are due to the hostility of the Western powers. Even if he fell from power, that's Putin, an even more hardline nationalist would probably succeed him. <laughs> the guy's nuts, but he gives away what's going on. The, the attack on Russia is to force Putin out of power. What's going on in Ukraine is done with a view to forcing Putin out of power. Yeah, what he gives away is probably... The invest- and they have a timeline. Like, well, right now, please, April. Yeah, and he probably has some per- investment perspective in uh, Ukraine because when he says... says Ukraine has to comply with IMF regulation. Is a, it is a double speak, which actually means Ukraine has to get all its resources, public resources, looted, ports, highways, mining industry, and it probably has an, an eye on some uh, juicy investments there. Yep. Breaking news. It was breaking anyway, a couple hours ago. Shots fired outside... Vice President Biden's Delaware residence. Yeah. <sighs> Hope he's okay. I uh, he's fine. He wasn't there. Oh, he wasn't there. No, no. it was several hundred yards from his house, so nobody really knows uh, what's going on. So. Hi, um, Caramba. Hi, Caramba. <laughs> there was an article this week in in the Guardian of London. Those hip hipster liberals. Uh, it was about declinism. I said, what's declinism? So they explained what declinism is. <clears throat> they asked, is the world really going to hell in the handbasket? Of course, they pulled in two psychologists to convince the reader that declinism is a kind of a new psychological state of mind where people are under a false impression that the world is coming apart at the seams. Of course, it's not this is a new psychiatric disorder. Disorder. <laughs> you well, think the world's coming apart at the same? You're a declinist. You're a declinist. And yeah. You suffer in a As long as you're not a hiding the declinist. <laughs> if the objective state of the world is decline, being a declinist is just being a realist. And, uh, well, you don't have to, to check more. I mean, the, the signs are all over the place. Yeah, about the financial, uh, there are two uh, other breaking news that we didn't cover in our latest shows concerning this financial uh, sphere. That A, the United States uh, financial authorities decided to suspend the quotation, price quotation of gold and precious metals if there is more than 10% variations. Daily. More than what? 10% variation. Variation. So if the price of gold is $1,000, it surged up to 1,100 destination, and they go back to the quotation of the day before. So, what does it mean? Uh, to, uh, some exegesis of the those financial rules. It means that uh, probably, so 
some financial institution see what is coming, which is actually not really a, a sharp increase in gold value, but more likely a sharp drop in currency values, hence the increase in gold value, and to keep maintaining the illusion of strong currency system, they legally decide by more than 10% a day. And uh, roughly at the same time, on the 22nd of December, a new, uh, a new law, and a law that was passed a, a few years ago was uh, improved, quote-unquote. And now, officially, all the money in your checking account and savings account held by U.S. banks is stated by law property of the bank. If the bank collapses, it is entitled to seize or the deposit. It also applies to money you would have in the safe, because banks are now allowed to open your vault and get your money in order to compensate for its loss and liabilities. Yeah, the message there is if we're going down, we're taking you with us. <laughs> you know? I like that term. My precious. Um, if you haven't seen it yet, check out um, the latest spectacular cosmic display. It's up on the top page. Massive fireball disintegrating over Far East and Russia yesterday. Uh, it was. You'll note actually that it was more or less reported slash confirmed to be a media fireball. There was no trying to cover it up. It's remarkably similar to what happened at the end of last month in Brazil, which they tried to spin as, oh, that's just a satellite or a piece of space junk coming down. But it looks exactly the same. Humongous objects pummeling the planet these days. I collected at least six reports in the last week, uh, local news reports from all over the U.S., um, about these loud booms or things, either solitary boom or a series of booms that can happen at the same time, so boom, 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 or they can be, happen in the same area over a number of days. Um, people are freaking out as to what they are, rightfully so. I think a number of them would be overhead meteor explosions, but not all of them. Clearly, when you have the same area, having a boom or two in successive days, some only some of which are picked up by uh, seismometers, you know, one point something, two, maybe three. There was a three point something in Connecticut a few days ago. Um, that's, I think that's been indicating something else. They're calling them earthquakes, but they're not. I mean, they're very brief. They rattle the house maybe, but just for a couple of seconds. People describe feeling the resonance, you know, in themselves, but they're brief. They're, they're not really earthquakes. They're more like, I think, another expression of the phenomenon that was global a couple of years ago, those strange sky sounds, trumpet sounds, which sort of seem to be coming from the ground, sort of from the sky, but no one could ever but these are, say for these sure. These are booms, aren't they? They're booms. They're more pronounced. They're not your groaning sounds, but I think it's a similar... Expression in that it's coming from within the earth, 
and reverberating in the atmosphere, it's always difficult to, to source whether it came from above or from below, you know? Well, there are boom, yeah, I mean, but the, the, that that has been happening. Uh, I mean, those kind of booms have been in the news repeatedly over the past several years, and it, so it's obviously hard to tell what people are hearing, but I mean, there's obviously overhead meteorite explosions, which are booms, which are blamed on, blamed on sonic booms, but obviously aren't. <clears throat> but then there's also booms that are known to happen as part of earthquake activity, not necessarily happening in conjunction with an earthquake, but that there are booms or noises like that that can be created by small shifts in the, in, in, yeah. in plates in the, in the crust, you know. Uh, yeah. I think it's all kind of understood as to what it actually is, even though people don't understand there is an explanation for it, even though they don't allow for overhead meteorite uh, detonations well, in particular. I, yeah, I hear you, but I don't think there always shifts like a, a direct one-to-one. So say there's a shift on the plate right under your feet in your local area, and therefore there's a boom. Um, what I'm getting is that they might be electrophonic in nature. Yes, there's some vibration deep in the earth, but it's not so much that the actual yeah. plate so, shifted right under that county or anything. But, well, they don't know, right? No. I mean, that's the thing. They don't, they don't know. know. And, and I mean, I think the, the main thing would be that there's, there's an audible boom either in the atmosphere or around them that shakes houses. People feel like Something exploded, you know, there's a shock wave type thing, you know. And it comes together. We're talking on one side on mechanical waves or sun waves. Mm. Explosion of a fireball can trigger a boom, acoustic boom. An earthquake can trigger some uh, called vibrations, tremors. Okay? That's one side. This being said, those two phenomena, earthquakes and fireballs, because of the energy release, electric release they induce in the Earth's crust or in the atmosphere can trigger what we can simplify, can trigger disturbance in the surrounding magnetic field. The Earth magnetic field, atmospheric or the crust magnetic field. Those disturbances can trigger some uh, very low frequency waves that are not audible. But then when it reach Region surrounding you, surrounding the observer, those non visible waves can be transduced by your spectacles, by a rock, by something in your environment into audible sounds. That's those horns, yeah, those that's ro- what the Canadian guy, the Canadian scientist, um, uh, he was a geologist or something, uh, a couple of years ago, was on. He was interviewed by a Canadian. Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, the Canadian News, basically, uh, because there were sounds being heard somewhere in Canada, and he gave that explanation um, about it kind of vibrating, you know, being picked up by even your, I think he even said your, your glasses. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. It can even be picked up. Spectacles are more efficient at transducing those waves, but even your skull can act as a transducer. Hence, the but in that is orientation of people and say it came from a. I don't know where, but of course, it was transduced here in your brain, around your ear. Right, exactly. So what you might have in those situations is people hearing a boom that they think is a loud, all-around kind of sky boom type thing, when in fact it could be very localized to their face, Mm -hmm. and no one else would hear it. Yeah, Yeah. but related and originating from what originated the sonic boom as well, this fireball uh, that was seen... uh, going to say that was seen uh, 10 minutes ago. But the interesting thing is the timing. 
cause fireballs because of the speed of sound. First you see it, and then a few minutes later, you hear the sonic boom. But in some reports, actually, witnesses mentioned that while they saw the fireball fragmented, exploding, they also heard the boom, and which suggests strongly that transmission was instantaneous or a light Close speed, speed yeah. which is one of the specific cities of those ultra low frequency waves. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So some of these news reports I've watched, it's hilarious because you know a lot of locals have something to say. Yeah, yeah, I heard it. Shook my house, woke me out of bed, and then others are like, "What? I didn't hear nothing." <laughs> And they're in their same town, you know, and yeah, they a large area. But they don't have the same transducer environment. Yeah. They might not have spectacles and not, they don't have the same skull uh, mechanical uh, properties or acoustic properties. They're, they're not surrounded by transducing objects, maybe. And that's why it was very puzzling for scientists for, for many years. You had a group of witnesses. Some heard it. And the one next to him didn't hear it. Well, have we got any other news this week? Um, not really. I mean, there's several different things I suppose that could be uh, brought up from a from a news item point of view. Um, I mean, there's lots of horrible stories. Obviously, uh, the, the Earth is the planet is going down the tubes apparently, and despite what the Guardian is saying about declinism, that's effectively a trick of the mind. That uh, apparently, uh, on the declinism thing, apparently 71% of respondents said they thought the world was getting worse. But scientists are here to tell you that it's just a trick of your mind. Pay no attention to objective reality. It's getting better. Well, maybe it's not getting better, but it's certainly not getting worse. That's just negative thinking. So, um, I mean, yeah, cops, there's been continued... Uh, and a police brutality in the U.S., that just seems to be a mainstay. I mean, you don't even have to mention it at this point, you know. Um, there's uh, almost no. every week there's something. I mean, when you see things happening that regularly uh, or things being publicized that regularly on on YouTube or on, on media sites, uh, you can imagine how many go unreported, you know. True. Um, uh, go ahead. Yeah, but decline is on. I think it's very bad for society because it creates this negative uh, sentiment in the population and like uh, apology of terrorism, it should be uh, made illegal. Declinists should be put in jail with uh, terrorism uh, apologies. Yeah. And the world will be much better. For bringing everybody down. <laughs> of course. It takes yeah. a toll on so, our psyches. There's a story this week about uh, Miami police officers using uh, mugshots of black People, black men, some of them teenagers, for target practice. Uh, people still think that there's no uh, no racism, endemic racism problem within uh, U.S. police forces. Clearly, there is. Let's just get over that debate right now and just admit the truth. You know, well, it doesn't, if you're not going to do anything about it, just admit it. It doesn't improvement. At least they're not shooting real people. Exactly. Yeah, they're just shooting. Mean, this is target practice, this is so they can identify their. The targets, you know, the real culprits. Yeah, exactly. Um, I don't know. Uh, I mean, 
there's another story probably a lot of people saw the Taiwan guy died after playing online games for three days straight. Yeah. That's uh, that's happened uh, on several occasions over the past uh, you know number of years. For some, that's how they that's how they're keeping people under control in the US. I think, um, or sorry, in Taiwan, they're just making them play a first-person shooter game for days on it until they fall yeah. off their chair dead. You see that the word not happen anymore. As stated by the Guardian, the word is so wonderful that you have individuals that in order to escape play online video games for three days in a row until they die. Yeah, that's how. That's because the world is so it's such an exciting place. But Pierre, he died a free man. He was liberated. No, he got. Uh, apparently, the story said that he was beaten in the game he was playing. So uh, it was even worse. Well, you win some of this. Um. Yeah. So he was beaten by a black people, a black individual. Yeah. We'd have lots of things to say if we weren't uh, controlled by. Uh, by, by free speech laws in France, you know. No, maybe we wouldn't really, to be honest. We can say what we want, because what we say doesn't really infringe any any laws anywhere, really. You know, it's not... Because, uh, you know, we don't want to give the impression that something we would say would be illegal or that we have illegal thoughts, because we don't know when no. thought crime is going to come up. We, we, have good given, thoughts. we might be giving the authority the heads up there that we're possible thought crime... Uh, um, <clears throat> Thought crime culprits. So, uh, no, we don't even think bad thoughts. We think good thoughts all the time. We are not the cleanest. What's the opposite of the cleanest? An optimist. Uh, An optimist. A climbist. Uh, a climbist. Yeah, we're climbing. <laughs> Things can only get better. It just but then it depends on your interpretation of what getting better is, I suppose. We we have some. Sounds uh, like dreams. somebody's got a case of the mundus. Yeah. A case of the what? I don't know what that is, but apparently someone's got a case of the Munders. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, they said, you know, Fireball, East Russia. Was the, They found a mystery mile wide ring in Antarctica. Uh, maybe a crater. They think it's a crater from a house sized meteorite. Um, seven to ten meters wide. But it's a two-kilometer uh, radius ring in Antarctica. Uh, so it seems to be that, in that case anyway, uh, impact radius, as in destruction, to some extent radius from uh, that meteorite, even though there's nothing to destroy except ice, but it fell in a populated area. I think it's about 200 times. I mean, just in that example, obviously you can't, there's no there's no rule for this, but in terms of the size of that meteorite, seven to ten meters, it created a yeah, so ten meters to create a two thousand meter uh, kind of wave of destruction or crater effectively. So uh, we can use that as a yardstick. Whenever you see any meteorites that might be threatening to hit the Earth, but probably just imagine if they say it's a fifty meter wide. Uh, uh, meteorite, then multiply that by 200, and that's your radius of destruction if it happened to hit in your area. 10 kilometers? That's yeah, six mile radius for a 50 meter uh, chunk of rock. Which isn't very big, you know, big old stone, like, but uh, that's a rule of thumb. That's a rule of thumb, obviously. There's lots of different things. Yeah, depending, depending on materials, meteorite, yeah, the angle, the speed, the speed of it, all that kind of stuff. But 
That's an example, you know. Yeah. Um, so was, yeah, the Severed Fireballs. I mean, uh, these are the kind of things that we suppose we shouldn't really have to mention people because they're happening all the time and you can read them on uh, uh Romania, California, loud booms across the USA, uh, Brazil, <coughs> fireballs. Uh, There's an interesting thing about fireballs and mentioning that this, we seem to have gone through a, a first cluster over the past few years. In uh, July and August 2014, the phenomenon seemed to have receded with a follower occurrence of fireballs. And uh, since October, it's picking up again. So a possible hypothesis is that we have entered a, a second cluster. And uh, just to be a declinist, uh, we can only hope that the second cluster is bigger than the first one. Yeah. Uh, record snowfall, two meters in western Norway. Um, there's been record snowfalls <coughs> in a few other places. Uh, well, Greece, Greece, a couple of weeks ago in, in the Greek island, um, but also further uh, east and eastern, uh, in other parts of Eastern Europe. Um, NASA just on the whole several meters of snow in strange places like the Greek islands. Uh, NASA today admitted, or recently admitted, that um, they were only 38% sure that 2014 was the warmest on record because at the end of last year, there was a lot of noise and stuff being made in the media about 2014 being the warmest year on record, which was obviously, you know, ignore that snow, 2014 was really warm. Uh, ignore the fact that uh, you Did remember you this year being really cold. Did you read how they came to that? It was actually really warm. Yeah. and They took was... sea temperatures and projected them onto the land. I said, there you go. Yeah, but that's what they've been doing for a long time. I mean, the whole thing's a farce, you know. I mean, they, I mean, when they when they came up, even the whole hide the decline business uh, from a few years ago, the, the, the climate gate situation, that was their readings of global temperatures over the past X number of years were based on um, only a few selected uh, measurement measurement devices or whatever yeah. in particular areas, you know, and particularly. Uh, so, so I mean, they were they were just generalizing the data. You know, they, they were projecting data from a few small areas mm. that actually yeah, tended to be warmer because they were in, for example, one of them was in uh, in a an urban area where it's warmer because you've got constant yes. buildings, heat, cars, all that kind of stuff. And then they project that onto the world, you know, without doing the proper research. It's just basically really, really shoddy research. And you know NASA doesn't necessarily do shoddy research unless it's not forced to, unless it chooses to. So this is kind of evidence of deliberate fixing of the data to present an image of climate change, the world's warming, and we all need to do something about it. I mean... So they, yeah, they came out last year and said uh, 2014 was uh, was a new glo- record for for global temperatures, for global warmth, and it made headlines around the world. And then uh, it, uh, you know, they, they didn't mention at the time, and for some reason they've, they've come out and said it now, and they say that they're only, of course, they're very precise in their in their retraction or in their admission of guilt, which is to say we're 38% sure this was true. 38%, not 37%, we're 38% sure, but still less less than 50, which means you're not really sure that this is the case. So tell us, how did this get to be presented in headlines around the world as 
a fact yeah. at the end of last year, but the, the start of this year. The harm was done, and now they can retract because they program the mind a bit further into the myth of anthropogenic global warming. And here is why basing a global warming, alleged global warming, on sea temperature is a big lie. Most fault lines, see for example the shape of the ring fire, are under sea, underwater. Mm. Fault lines are where you have most volcanic and earthquake activities. And 2014 has been the highest year in recent history as far as those activities are concerned. So it's not surprising that you might have indeed an increase in global sea temperature because of those earthquake and volcanic activities. However, at the same time, you might have a decrease in overall global atmospheric temperatures. Yeah, again, a lot of lies, a lot of manipulation. Anthropogenic global warming never existed, and global warming ceased about 20 years ago. Since then, we're experiencing a global cooling. Absolutely, and you can see it all around you. That volcano in Iceland, um, Bardabunga, that erupted in September, it's basically continuously erupting. That's where, what do you call them, going for his parties? <coughs> Bardasconi. Bunga Bunga. Bunga Bunga parties there. They say it's developing the largest lava field. And the photos of it are, wow. Yeah. It's, it's bigger than Manhattan. That the planet has seen for 200 years. I say they're just pulling that out of the back size. They basically have never seen such a thing. And there's no history of Florida. I'm sure there's lava fields. On geological timescale, for 200 years, who knows? And did you see, you saw this article mentioning that the cause of increased earthquake and volcanic activity might be the reduction in the spinning frequency of planet Earth. Yes, but they took the, um, they took, they took this, this sort of the surprise element out of that by saying that they noticed that increases in Volcanic activity are correlated with the speed of rotation of the planet. That's not bad. That's, That's not bad. One. I think we're the first one to have uh, hypothesized a correlation between uh, the spinning speed of the planet and the uh, earthquake and uh, other coastal uh, disruptions. It kind of makes sense, though, doesn't it? Take a spinning orb and slow it down at all. And if you've got anything that's uh, not to the surface, anything that's uh, movable on the surface is going to have a, an effect on it, you know. Yeah. And particularly if there's liquid either on or underneath the surface and you slow it down, even yeah. marginally, it's going to have an effect. Yeah. It's a big planet with a lot of liquid inside just waiting to And uh, the, the, cherry, the cherry on the pie that uh, it's a good analogy if inside you have liquid, magma, and uh, on top, solid mm-hmm. plates, continental plates, but they don't have the same density. So when does it slow down? One slows faster than the other one. They don't slow down at the same speed. It induces friction between the crust, the liquid, the magma. Friction and this friction, uh, easy to imagine how this friction can be the main cause for earthquakes and volcanic eruptions. You could probably model this by making a cake. No? Like a gluten-free cake and spinning it with like uh, some kind of a chocolate. Well, some kind of a liquidy kind of a cake, you know, and then yeah. putting it on a spindle, you know, spinning it fast and see what happens. I think we should we should 
we, we should pursue that experiment. Yes. yes, for scientific reasons, of course. And uh, yeah, that's a good idea. <laughs> anyway, I think we'll leave it there for this week, folks. Uh, we're getting close to the top of the hour. Uh, Let them eat cake. Let them eat cake. Uh, we will thank our listeners and to our chatters and uh, we will be back sorry that was the wrong one we'll be back next week uh, with another show on a topic that uh, we're just going to wait and find out what it is it'll be what's going on on this planet and what everybody should do about it if anything other than watch it so yeah until then uh Thanks for listening. Have okay. See you next week. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.